0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, December the 27th, 2022. Four more days of 2022. 2022. And then we're on to the next chapter in our lives, 2023. And as we look back at 2022, I wonder how we're thinking. Many of us will prescribe more of some things, less of others. We did a show earlier the year uh, with a doctor, Eric Prather of San Francisco, uh, the author of The Good Good Sleep Prescription, uh, which explains how we can prescribe more sleep i'm sure many people will be believing that they didn't get enough sleep in 2022 and they want to prescribe for themselves more sleep in 2023 the same might be true of love in the series of uh, prescription books put out there's a one called the love mm. prescription we all want more love in our lives maybe we didn't get enough in 2022 and we want more in 2023 like sleep but the one thing that many of us have too much of which we want to get rid of we want to liberate ourselves is stress and in this series there is a book called the stress prescription seven days to more joy and ease by my guest today Alyssa apple phd she's a doctor based in san francisco and she's joining us um uh, Alyssa, welcome thank you
1: so much andrew happy to be here
0: what kind of 2022 have you had, Alyssa? Have you had enough sleep and love <laughs> um, or are you too much stress? Well, I would, I I would agree with so your... You're probably good at managing it for yourself at least.
1: <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm a big manager. I mean, that's how I can have studied this for you know 25 years and still be so interested and engaged in it. It's fascinating to me and I need it myself. I use most of the strategies in the book myself.
0: So I've been looking, spending the morning preparing for this. Stress is central in in many, uh, many health organizations. The World Health Organization has a whole section on stress. So does the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, And when you go to Google, you even have uh, some, some nice images and asking, what is the stress? So. Uh, Alyssa, to begin, what exactly is stress in your mind? Is it a medical term? Is it a mental term?
1: You know, it's not one or the other, and it depends on who you ask. This is one of the problems with stress. It means, so we all think we know what it means. I'm stressed out. We all know what that means. But we study it in different ways and define it in different ways. In a nutshell, it is our emotional, emotional, And physiological response to a threat. The threat is usually something that happens outside of us, but it could easily be a thought. We construct our own reality, right? So we can assign um, a, a lot of threat value to something other people wouldn't. So stress is very personal. What stresses us out might not stress out someone else.
0: We've done many shows, uh, Alyssa, in 2022 and before on COVID and its impact on our lives and on our thoughts. It seems to me, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, that we're living in the age of stress where everyone feels stressful. Is that because we've suddenly discovered the term? Have we always been, quote unquote, as stressful? Or are we indeed living in an age maybe of the internet, of COVID, of I don't know, whatever you want to call it, late stage capitalism, where we just feel intense stress? Mm
1: -hmm. It's a really good question. People like to argue about this. Are we really more stressed than our, our grandparents and our ancestors? There were always threats. There's data on this, Andrew. So we know that on a daily basis, over the last few decades, humans are reporting more stressful events and feeling more stressed by them. So yes, stress has gone up. And the other piece of evidence is the mental health epidemic. We know even before COVID, that there was just excessive levels of depression and anxiety disorders. And now during COVID, there's been 120 million excess cases globally. So the levels are high. Stress is a fuel for developing Depression or anxiety disorders for people who are particularly vulnerable to them, but just living with too much stress itself is miserable, and we all do it. And and we don't need to live with such high levels of daily stress. And that's why I wrote the book.
0: Um, before we get on to your prescription, um, I, I, I'm curious as to whether you think this is also a generational thing. I'm a baby boomer, a late baby boomer. Uh, I have children who are obviously anything but baby boomers who, who seem, particularly my daughter, to feel intense sense of stress. Is there something generational? You must see a lot of patients. I presume you see some older as well, but are you seeing more younger people these yeah, days? Particularly absolutely generational. Alyssa? What you
1: see, Andrew, in your family is perfectly reflected in the population data. It is so generational. And so what we tend to focus on is there's a youth mental health epidemic, but there's a gradient and it's steep. And the gradient shows us that the levels of anxiety and depression, even during the pandemic, were much lower among those 65 and older. So I'm talking about like 40 percent, you know, Um, concerning depressive symptoms in our young adults and maybe under 10% in our older adults. So there's a tremendous amount of resilience that comes with aging. And it's partly with what we were um, referring to about with age, we go through both our own personal dramas and traumatic experiences and survive. But we also see history. We also see other existential crises come and go. The Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. There have been reasons that our, um, you know, eighty-plus-year-olds view the current situation much more, much more, with much more perspective than our children.
0: Yeah, but isn't it more than that as well? I mean, I don't know if you've got kids. You 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 mentioned about seeing history, and the older you are, the more history you've seen. But mm-hmm. I wonder whether there's this idea of. Of, of, of being always in the front row, having a seat in the front row of history. You often hear younger generation people saying, well, I'm particularly stressed. I lived through 9-11. I lived through the Great Recession. But I mean, unless you were unfortunate enough to be in one of the towers, living through 9-11 wasn't exactly that traumatic or it shouldn't have been. Is technology and particularly social media, is that resulting in us being perpetually in the front row of history of a, this sort of fa- phantom-like nightmare show that we can't switch off? Is that one of the issues I the love
1: how you're framing it. Being in the front row of history, we talk a lot in the research world about the role of media for inserting the visual images, the traumatic images anywhere in the world into our minds and bodies at any time. And it is really like a front row seat. We feel it in our body. So 9-11, for example, blood pressure went up in a more dramatic way, the closer you were to the epicenter in New York. But it also went up on this coast. And the data collected in Washington showed smaller increases. We feel what we see, even if it's subtle, even if we're not aware of it. Now, the social media is is, is complex, right? Because it's not just the bad news. At any moment, and just the headlines today. I mean, it's just become something where we think we're numb to, but we're still getting these, having a pretty dark view of the world. But um, but the other pieces, Andrew. I don't know, you know, if this is true for your own daughter, but there's the um, negative sense of self. When you are a developing young person, you you value yourself based on comparisons with other people, and so. There we go. You know, these seeing the lives that others are living, that we're not the FOMO, the fear of missing out all of that. And then just the superficial values that are promoted, that the stickiness of of hate and and uh, social criticism. That's what's that's what is that, you know, the main core. Um, content that's coursing
0: through social media yeah i mean i probably shouldn't talk too publicly about my own door with it but I, i'm i'm curious um Alyssa, uh do you think when it comes and, and we're gonna of course come to your seven-day prescription but might one thing be just simply not to read media to switch your phone off to not even buy newspapers i mean as we speak now we're <laughs> We're living through a particularly bad uh, cold spell on the East Coast and the way in which even the responsible media cover it. The New York Times, for example, it's all about the tragedy of death and the the people who unluckily died in this big freeze. It's presented in such a personal way that people don't seem to be able to escape it. Everything gets personalized, which means that, again, talking about this front seat, there really isn't a front seat. We're in history. And there's no distinction between the audience and the participants.
1: Mm. And I think that's especially true for people who are empathic and that making it a personal story is what the media knows that is, um, turns. you know, that's how we get addicted. That's how we feel. That's how we relate. It's, changing our hearts to see those personal stories. So I don't think it's inherently bad because it makes us care. But I agree with you that it's all front seat.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the E word, empathy. It's always used in a good way. We're supposed to be more empathetic. We're supposed to live in more and more of an empathetic culture. But actually, in the way you're presenting it, empathy is a bad thing. That if media presents everything in empathetic terms, then that actually adds to the stress level.
1: you know, you're, you're touching on something that we think about a lot in the mental health field. So it is empathy itself, feeling for another person can be too much, can go bad, can turn into empathic distress when we don't have good boundaries and we don't know how to necessarily help someone. We just see their pain and that's hard. So there are a lot of strategies that we talk about, especially for therapists and people in the um, in self care or um, service industries, how can you be with someone in their pain without feeling it as if it's yours and letting it create this vicarious stress, depression in your own body? So there's a lot of nuance there. I don't have any quick fixes. One one way that the field has really made an important distinction is between empathy, just seeing and feeling, which is not necessarily constructive versus compassion, which is seeing, feeling, caring and doing something, or having the intention to help in some way. When we can have an outlet for what we care about, for helping be a small part of the solution it absorbs our distress. Its action is a sponge for anxiety. Same with climate. We're just sitting here. Right. The climate If You hear person. so many
0: kids saying, I'm not going to have any kids because the planet's finished and it's this deep anxiety, which might be exaggerated. I wonder if there's another side to the, the stress coin. We seem to be living in end of times an end-of-times kind of age in which everything is seen apocalyptically. Maybe that's why COVID seemed almost inevitable and so unsurprising. Is the other side of the stress coin euphoria? Um, So so stress is obviously bad, but for younger generations, they feel more euphoria, more euphoric, which I assume is a, a good thing. They feel things more. So if you feel things more, then you're going to feel stress more, but you're also going to feel good things like euphoria. Mm,
1: interesting. I, I have different words for it you're describing. Okay, well, you're the doctor. That, that I'm, that... just,
0: I'm just asking the question.
1: <laughs> Tell me if this fits. The experiences of suffering, which we see every day all around us, are intertwined and, in fact, the flip side of the experience of joy that we can only feel joy in part, in contrast to feeling deep caring and the suffering in life. And that we need both. We bounce back. We can't just have suffering. I know during mourning, loss of a family member, there, there the relief of laughter, the, the kind of depth of appreciation for caring people, caring friends, people to just be there with you when you're really suffering, just the, the threshold for emotions is lower. You feel things more and you're sensitized. And I've certainly felt that during times when I have um, gone through traumatic experiences, I will forever have more empathy for others who have gone through similar and different traumas. Your heart opens more.
0: It does. And it doesn't. I mean, it it may not be a, Coincidence, Elisa, that you and I are talking about stress. And we both live in San Francisco. Actually, we're not far apart. We live close. It's an odd city, a very postmodern city in which the experience of suffering is very visual. There's huge armies of homeless people. Um, there's something medieval, I think, about this experience. Does this touch on your theories of, of stress and why perhaps in San Francisco? um stress is exaggerated particularly perhaps amongst the rich who see suffering so up front so vicariously if that's the right word
1: so do you what is your sense of how it affects people particularly well i mean it's it's
0: people eat. spending large amounts of money going to doctors like you living in expensive houses and seeing suffering all around them is it if one wanted to be political is it a way out an excuse for not participating politically
1: what do you, yeah i mean this it's a good question i don't really have an answer for that the people that i tend to know are um very liberal and engaged i mean i live in <laughs> i live where you do so mm. they're you know they're they're typically sharing their wealth with their favorite causes well
0: they and, I, I you're being a little kind they're sharing a part of their wealth which is easily disposable they're living in multi-million dollar houses living multi-million dollar in san francisco at least multi-million dollar lifestyles and indulging their own causes anyway l- l- that's uh, Neither here nor there. Let's let's get to the prescription. Seven days, you promise, Elisa. Seven days to more joy and ease with your stress prescription. So let's not speak like Marxists. Let's talk about your prescription. How do we deal with stress?
1: <laughs> okay. My last point is: I think you are um, making some good points about the existential stress. These post, you know, potentially apocalyptic times we are living in and there's no questioning that we may be near end times and there are different ways of coping with that and different ways of living our life with that possibility and that's chapter seven about living our purpose about how do you want to live even if you have a short time to live and then there's also personal stress the book is about how can we manage our own stress our own daily drama what are the small things that we can implant in our day that are making a difference so um so that is that those are really two different right and i agree stress. and
0: let, i want to get to the second one but i do want to make it okay, clear that i don't do actually that. believe we live in end times i think that we actually live um,
1: okay i'm glad to hear you I don't know, believe that you know, you know, I, I think, think we actually also...
0: live in a pretty good time but that's another issue so let, let's get to the prescription let's okay. let's 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 address let just the fact say that some people fear. feel deeply stressed out for one reason or other How are they going to feel less stressed in 2023, Elisa, if they if they uh, if they buy your book and take your prescription, your seven day uh, seven days to more joy and ease?
1: Okay, so the good news is, of course, I I hear about um, people who've already read the book early and they've said it's helped them with their own stress. And that's a tremendous relief. What I've done is collected the best scientifically shown experimental or real clinical study data on what helps people both reduce their stress in the moment, when they're thick of dealing with things, reduce the stress when they're at rest. This is kind of our baseline, what we sit with and we might not be aware of. And what helps us really release and let go into more deep rest states and so there's a lot of strategies i don't really believe um i believe it's too ambitious to try it in seven days i think you read one chapter a week or you just jump to the chapter that you think mm. calls well let's
0: story. talk about these chap- you've got day one okay. let's say that chapters chapter one
1: yeah
0: uh, chapter two chapter three is be the lion chapter four is train for resilience chapter five is let nature do the work chapter six is don't just relax restore and chapter seven is start full end for what, what where would you begin what would you like what are you I
1: you know I've got my favorites I want to talk about what uh did you try any of them Andrew and and where do you want to Go deep on this because i told you
0: that i do, i don't really have stress i think we're living in good times so i'm not sure i'm a very good patient for you
1: well i want to understand that mindset because that's um something a lot of people want to feel that not just the optimism about these times but why don't you what stresses you out and why aren't you stressed every day like everyone else
0: well you may think this is rather odd Doctor dr apple but it's and my daughter certainly does is I eat a lot of grapefruit, and uh, that gives me, I think, that's my antidote to stress. If you eat two grapefruits a day, but I'm sure that's not something in your prescription.
1: You know, I missed that one. If I had interviewed you earlier, I would have maybe looked into the... Maybe that was,
0: that's day eight. That's a seven, if we would have to... (laughs) To borrow some language from Ron DeSantis, if we were have if we were to have an eighth day, that would be it, the grapefruit diet. But okay. in all seriousness, in your Twitter handle, for example, you talk about your expertise in mindfulness and aging and health span, but also in obesity and sugar and addiction. How much of stress is bound up with, with how we eat in particular? And our absence of exercise, I mean, what what are the things that can really help in the long term?
1: Mm -hmm. I really view, and based on data, our mind and our body as so intertwined. So all of those lifestyle practices, keeping a routine, there's no question they help us manage daily stress. There are even studies on micronutrients that help people have less PTSD symptoms after a trauma, so the nutrition is biology, it's changing our neurotransmitters and it can help us maintain equanimity, particularly if we're deficient in certain nutrients. So more
0: more grapefruit then?
1: Maybe so, it's interesting. I'm gonna try your prescription. Um, I'll let you know how it goes. So, I mean, certainly you're getting a boot, lots of boosts of antioxidants. The stress response creates a lot of oxidative stress and inflammation. Eating an anti-inflammatory diet is important period for health, but it also reduces some of that excess stress soup that we've created with our body. So, okay. So yes, stress eating exists. We all do it a little bit. So most people shift to highly palatable food when they're stressed, which is high fat, high sugar, high salt. We're not reaching for the carrots and typically not the grapefruits. So Mm -hmm. this is something we know about people, even really skinny people, when they're under stress, they develop the the belly fat, right? There, there, there's tons of cortisol receptors in the intra-abdominal fat pads. We call that stress fat. It's just like you know, a magnet for calories and cortisol and it builds up first. So our body shape can be a little bit pot-bellied, even if we're skinny for under chronic stress. That also kind of happens with aging. We don't want to confuse the two. I'm talking fast because I spent probably about eight years studying this, and we did interventions to see, can we reverse this stress eating? What if we do mindfulness interventions? And I'll tell you about um, the the bottom line is no mindfulness is not going to help you lose weight if that's all you're doing. It may help you regulate your eating so you're doing less overeating, less binge eating, and improve your glucose tolerance. Those are studies, trials we did at Osher Center here at UCSF. Um, if you're a compulsive eater, then you really want to consider mindfulness or other calming strategies, self-regulation strategies. So in our studies of comparing uh, mindfulness to a diet without mindfulness, we find like 50% of the weight loss is accounted for by reducing this kind of impulsivity and cravings that we have. So the mindfulness does have a role. Our best study, I'll tell you really quickly, was with pregnant women. We trained them in mindfulness for eight weeks. They were all overweight or obese. And we found that, of course, they felt better. Eight weeks later, less stress, less depression, but their oral glucose tolerance test was better. So that was exciting. My colleague, Nicole Bush at UCSF, followed them and followed the babies. And now we know, like last year during COVID, Eight years later, the moms who had the training still have lower depression. Everyone got worse because of COVID, but they still were significantly lower. So there were some long-term effects, and we never even get to study long-term effects, right? Our grants are like last five years if we're lucky. So we've really pleased, and we're going to try to continue this. So mindfulness is an important skill. You don't have to sit and meditate. You can do these informal check-ins during the day, and those are important as well for balancing.
0: What about exercise?
1: Exercise is probably um, it's my it's a strategy I need to use them more the most, but it's you mean probably personally
0: most- or with your patient. Sorry, you mean personally for yourself or with your patients?
1: Personally, I'm admitting I have lots of room for improvement there. What we what we know about exercise is that it is an antidepressant if used regularly. So there's a tremendous number of studies, they're listed on the John W. Brick website. We've done, um, my colleague Cassie Beaton has done a huge white paper that will be published, but basically the evidence is there, like exercise works if you do it, right? No one who's depressed is gonna naturally turn to that. In fact, they they're typic, It's there's a hump to get over with when you're unfit. So that's the barrier. Um, but that can be worked on. Exercise could be written as a prescription. People need coaches when they're depressed for exercise. Exercise reduces stress. My colleague, Eli Parvin, has been, we've done a lot of caregiver studies. So he had caregivers, older people caring for a partner with dementia, exercise for um, several months with a, with a Fitbit, with a trainer, and six months later, they have lower depression, lower stress, lower rumination. We think of rumination as kind of the fuel of stress. That's how chronic stress happens is we keep it alive in our mind. Um, and they also had had better telomere length. So that was interesting. When we look at their biological aging, they looked better off. So exercise is important. But Andrew, one thing I write about in the book that um, is maybe more surprising is that the short bursts of exercise, high-intensity interval training, doing something for even just a few seconds or a few minutes, taking a break and doing it again, that is a really great type of positive stress for mood, for depression, for health. So we can, you know, that's the time efficient version if you can stand the intensity.
0: Yeah, it's funny, listening to you, it, it sounds to me like it's a, a sort of a, a, a medicalized version of Benjamin Franklin style Puritanism. Do you think that the founders of, of America were onto something that self-mastery, self-control, the deeply puritanical notions that, for better or worse, lay at the cultural, political root of America, that they go beyond politics and ideology, and they're actually, in an odd way, physiological.
1: Interesting. Well, I love that. And I think that conscientiousness and you know being able to have a routine and have habits, stress reduction is about... Lifestyle; it is about daily habits. So I think there, there's something fundamental about that. It's all very important. It is physiological, and we also have. Maybe you're going to um, argue with me on this, so I'm going to say it. We have structural determinants of our health. We have much of our population with less privilege. People of color, people are discriminated against, do not have the same degrees of freedom to carry out those health behaviors they don't have mm. every time they have two jobs no
0: I, I certainly wouldn't argue with you I, I, I couldn't agree although I think we have to be careful not to talk about cultural determinants structural as opposed to cultural I mean it would be I think dangerous to talk about people of different skins having different determinants right
1: so even sleep I know you talked about sleep with Eric there's sleep equity issues And people of, um, many people of color get less sleep and lower quality sleep. So all of this is biological. The way that we absorb our stress, our signals of unsafety, our lack of privilege, that is in our body too.
0: What about love uh, and sex? Is that important?
1: Um, Absolutely. I mean, we've got
0: the love prescription. I didn't have that... These characters, uh, John Gottman and Julie Schwartz Gottman on the show, but I have to get them on too.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they have great advice. I mean, you can look at their- um,
0: You mean their, as a married couple or as scientists?
1: They have great, adv- uh, they are, they, they're basing a lot of this on research and science, and a lot of it is from their um, experiences and their expertise. And they, you know, it works for a lot of people. They have great advice about relationships. Uh, Just, um, you know, what was it? Maybe even today they posted um, to actually like, look who's in front of you and appreciate that. Appreciate your partner or your loved one in all of their full being. Because when you're, you know, you take someone for granted so easily and you don't see them in full, And so just those reflections and stepping back. Anyway, they have tremendous advice. Yes, love is important. It social connection and feeling safe and having at least one support person is probably the most important part of stress reduction. Didn't write about it much. I did write a line that said, do this with a friend. If you try these practices with a friend, you're going to be more successful. You're going to have more fun. You're accountable to someone. It's going to work better.
0: Well, we're four days away. Um, uh elisa from 2023 and people might actually not get to hear this until 2023 it seems to me on these things that it's once you're in the routine once you're into your your first day or certainly your second day it becomes a lot easier so w- w- where would you advise people to start with the the, the stress prescription in 20? 23 just to begin Mm. to get get some momentum to begin the narrative because as you're suggesting it's complicated there are many pieces to this it takes more than seven days it may take seven years but it will improve your life where to start okay and i know you can't and you know everyone has different identities and challenges so it's no i have
1: an answer to that one it's a it's a really important question start with stepping back and reflecting on your life and taking a stress inventory. So chapter two is about a stress inventory. We have different, right? It's not a generic prescription. It's like, what is your day like? Is it too rushed? Is there something you can delete? Are you doing something in your day that fits your North Star, that fits into what you care about most? Does your time match your priorities? So there's these lists that we can make. And we kind of sort things into this is out of my control, this I can control and change. And then there's this bucket with a gray area. So a New Year's resolution, for example, would be finding a way to not just say I'm going to be less stressed, but to say, I'm going to try to change my day in this specific way. And rushing and time pressure and having too much to do at a certain stage of life, is ubiquitous. So I'm just picking on that because I think it describes most people listening. We cause that, we create that, we don't have to be rushing. I cannot live the life I want if I'm constantly rushing. And so I'm a a striving model of someone who often controls, I control my schedule, I have the breaks. And sometimes that all goes to pot, right? It depends on what's happening in life and we don't always control our time. But when we can, that is one way that we can actually have a balance of these states, these mind states that I describe. So there's, you know, red mind of challenge. We want that to be positive challenge where we're always going to have stressful things to deal with. And some of them where they're positive things we're striving for, but we want to be able to shift flexibly into green mind, get out in nature for 10 minutes, three times a week, or maybe every day if you can. Like there's good science behind these things that like, that's not just feeling good. That's actually changing up things, in the body, the stress hormones, the blood pressure, shifting us from ruminative mind to interconnected mind. It's when okay, people like you, people who want to know why should I do this? What is it doing besides improving my health in 20 years? There's this beautiful science it's not just my studies. I review the best in the field that helps us understand what we can do and why. And that's fuel. That is motivation for people to stick with things. So the stress inventory is a place to start. And then I would say um, deciding on, you know, maybe there's mindset strategies and you got to find what you believe and can say to yourself that's going to work in the moment. There are body Based strategies both to release and have low arousal, as well as to have those intense short bouts of stress, hyperthermia, cold, high intensity interval training. I mean, I I personally hate the cold. That's not gonna be on my list. Um, but I do realize I need both. You know, I need to have the I have I have a Peloton, I'll admit. So I need to have some of that kind of intensity as well as time to basically. Uh, carve out without the phone and the stimuli and the news.
0: Yeah, you got to put the phone down. If you put the phone down, of course, you won't be able to watch this. Finally, Alyssa, you talk about going to pot. What about the role of pot, of drugs and alcohol in dealing with stress? Are they the creators of the stress, the consequences of the stress, or is a nice glass of wine and a smoke in the evening, is that going to help on your p- stress prescription? Yeah,
1: very, very popular during the pandemic, um you know moderation especially in san francisco
0: right sorry especially in san francisco
1: (laughs) absolutely you can smell it in in certain days of the week on the street so the there's a you know there's there's a inflection point when these things become unhealthy and we're relying on them too much and the psychedelics are um, you didn't ask about that and -hmm. they're not easy you know to to get and to get a good guide and it's still underground but I mean, there's no doubt that that is going to be a huge part of our future mental health and just growth and insight. So not even just about treatment, but about using those wisely for actually having experiences of understanding how short our life is and how the beautiful miracle of everyday experiences, though I have gotten so much more in touch because of psychedelics into the joy and the beauty that's been in front of me my whole life that I haven't taken time to notice or haven't had the right mindsets for. All
0: right.